2: On Wednesday night, Joe Biden was the keynote speaker at the Muslims Making Change National Honours Ceremony. He told his audience that, if elected, he'd end the Muslim ban on day one and staff his administrations with Muslims at every level. His remarks were pre-taped. Mr Biden's only other campaign event that day was a virtual fundraiser with Wall Street bosses in the afternoon. Republicans complained that the man they call Hayden Biden is escaping scrutiny that the president has had to answer more than twice as many questions from journalists. At one point in the campaign, Joe Biden went three months without holding a press conference. But so far, Biden's quiet campaign has been a roaring success. No candidate in history has held such a big polling lead over a sitting president at this point in the cycle. With 17 days to go, this is Checks and Balance, I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what do we know about Joe Biden? The extraordinary resurrection of Joe Biden's political career in 2020 owes a lot to who he's not. Polls show that antipathy to the most divisive president in memory is what's driving his current popularity. During the nomination contest at the start of the year, Democrats coalesced around Biden only once the more extreme Bernie Sanders threatened to run away with the nomination. As he looks poised to become the next president, in this episode, we're asking who is Joe Biden and what does he want? We'll find out how far he might drag America to the left, look back on his influential role in the Iraq war, and hear from someone who worked closely with him as vice president. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are John Fasman, The Economist's Washington correspondent and anti-avocado campaigner, and Charlotte Howard, the New York bureau chief and lobbyist for musicals. Charlotte, how's your week been?
1: It's been great. My son has his first day of in-person school today, so that feels really revolutionary.
2: Congratulations. That's very exciting.
0: John, how about you? My week has been good because this is not a visual medium, so our listeners can't see that I'm currently sitting in a gully of cardboard boxes. Uh, So our week has been taken up with unpacking. We've just moved into a house. Our house, not a house, our house that we own, not someone else's.
1: You're just squatting in someone else's house. (laughs) That's (laughs) right.
0: That's right. (laughs) Writer for The Economist does not believe in property rights.
2: (laughs) Well, if my experience is anything to go by, those cardboard boxes will remain unpacked for at least a decade. Okay, let's get into the podcast. We've spent the past few episodes focusing on the demographic trends shaping the election. But in the couple of weeks that remain before November 3rd, we want to zero in on the candidates themselves. Joe Biden was on the cover of The Economist this month with the headline Bidenomics. The piece assesses Biden's plans and how far America may tilt to the left should he win the presidency. Vijay Vaitheeswaran, our US business editor, co-wrote the piece. He told me that Wall Street is coming around to the idea that Joe Biden is essentially a pragmatist.
3: The number one priority and probably the singular focus of year one of a Biden presidency would be containing the pandemic and putting the economy on a path to recovery. No other priority can succeed without that. It also dovetails very well with the need for stimulus and spending. Joe Biden wants to spend trillions of dollars. Uh, He has a $2 trillion plus infrastructure program, for example, that would very conveniently provide lots of money for jobs, for uh, shovels in the ground, at a time when it actually makes sense, when the economic malaise justifies government spending. And he would do it with probably a climate focus, a green tinge. So you would see green energy jobs, electrification, recharging points for the EV grid, electric vehicle grid that could be rolled out. So you would see multiple objectives achieved in year one through a massive green infrastructure spend, which he calls a build back better project. Beyond that, it's very hard to see in year one much else happening. Vijay, what do you think Biden's background, his sort of biography
2: tells us about his ideology and governing philosophy? I mean, he's accumulated a lot of experience in his 77 years. Some people have looked right back to his upbringing in Delaware at a time when DuPont basically owned the state, so far as I can tell, and read into that the idea that He's a pretty pro-business guy compared with a lot of other prominent Democrats. Does does
3: that seem right to you? He is not anti-corporate. It's wrong to paint him in that same corner as some uh, progressive Democrats. Uh, he does represent or had for many many years uh, Delaware, and is closely associated with it, where more than half of America's Fortune 500 companies are incorporated. So he's not hostile to industry. He is not even particularly hostile to Silicon Valley, where many Democrats want to impose antitrust and other kinds of measures. Uh, And his vice presidential pick, Harris, is known to be close to Silicon Valley. The other thing to say, though, is that, and it slightly runs against this, he is very much a pro-worker candidate and politician. And those two things don't need to be at odds. But in his worldview, there was a, a 1950s America in which companies worked for profit, but also took care of their workers. The great American middle class was built in his view by corporate America with help from a benevolent and helpful US government. And that's the America he wants to go back to. One in which corporations are good citizens. They think about their stakeholders. They pay a fair wage. Unionization is allowed, not demonized. And company profits as well as worker salaries and benefits go up hand in hand. That's his
2: vision. So if you were looking for somebody to break up Facebook, Biden's probably not your guy. What can we tell about how he would change tax and spending, both from his inclinations and from the sorts of constraints that he's going to be operating
3: under? He's very clear that he will increase taxes uh, in a couple of ways. First, really, is to reverse a lot of what Donald Trump did with his uh, signature tax cuts. Those affected corporations. He reduced taxation on companies. Biden wants to reverse part of that, uh, and he would increase taxes on the wealthiest. Analysis even by conservative think tanks show that the Biden tax cuts would hit uh, almost entirely the top 1%. That's how he's going to get the money, he says, for his many spending programs. Um, But we have to take it with a grain of salt. Some of that is electioneering. You make a lot of promises to a lot of people. He's not going to get everything he wants through even a Democratic Congress. If you dilute his spending plans, you get to a more realistic assessment of how he intends to expand the role of government, certainly more than it was under Obama or Bill Clinton, but nowhere near the vision of Senator Sanders or Senator Warren, as was proposed during the presidential campaigns. This is not European-style socialism. This is perhaps a swing in the pendulum towards a little bit more of government involvement in the economic affairs of Americans, but nothing like what has been caricatured.
2: Charlotte, let's begin by talking about the Wall Street view of Biden. If you go back to earlier in the Donald Trump presidency, one thing you'd hear from CEOs quite a bit, in my experience, was that they didn't particularly like Donald Trump, but they thought that he'd been good for business, You know, had cut deregulation and so forth. And on the flip side of that, they were worried about Democrats, even a centrist Democrat like Joe Biden coming in and raising taxes and increasing regulation and so on. But it feels like recently that sentiment has shifted. Goldman Sachs put out a note recently arguing that a blue wave in which Democrats not only took the presidency but did really well in the Senate would be positive for the US economy because it would likely lead to a big stimulus. So has Wall Street sort of come round to the idea of a Biden presidency?
1: In some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. And Wall Street obviously isn't a monolith. But there are a few things that are worth noting. One is that I think Wall Street remains anxious about financial regulation under Biden. It doesn't look like Elizabeth Warren is going to be Treasury Secretary and Biden is likely to choose someone who's way more of a centrist than Elizabeth Warren would be to lead the Treasury. But financial regulation does remain a concern. However, I think you saw a lot of skittishness and anxiety about the idea of an uncertain electoral outcome And it's been interesting that as the polls have indicated that there might be more of a clear winner, that Biden might be the next president, that seems to have calmed the markets a bit. And you also have seen a big surge in the share prices for some companies that would clearly benefit from a Biden administration. So the ETF that tracks clean energy companies has risen by a lot over the last month. And so you see the sort of shift, one, that Wall Street favors the certainty that might come and the lack of volatility that might come from a clear electoral outcome with Biden as the winner. And then also, as you say, this interest in a big Biden stimulus that could benefit certain industries.
2: And John, if Biden does win, and even if Democrats win big and get a lot of Senate seats, he's going to be constrained politically, isn't he? Because the better that Democrats do in those marginal seats, the more likely their caucus is going to have swing members who are centrist. I mean, you look at the Senate race in South Carolina at the moment. Jamie Harrison, who's running against Lindsey Graham there and doing really well in the polls, doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster, doesn't want to pack the Supreme Court, etc., Even if Democrats were to get, say, a 60 vote majority, which looks like a real stretch at the moment, that would entail bringing in quite a lot of moderate Democrats who wouldn't be up for the full left-wing program as endorsed by Elizabeth Warren, say.
0: That's exactly right. A wave election this year would bring, let's say, that Democrats do extraordinarily well and flip seven seats, which is plausible, which is sort of the outer end of a good day for Democrats. What that effectively does, though is empower not the left, but the sort of center of their caucus, and especially the sort of center right of their caucus. Senators like Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, Jamie Harrison, you mentioned, Cal Cunningham is fairly centrist. These are people who would not be on board with the full Sanders-Warren agenda. It would take a lot of wooing to even get them to sort of support the sort of stimulus that I think Biden envisions. So this is a party that would have a majority, but where the fulcrum of power would rest probably right of where the center is in their party.
2: Charlotte, it seems fairly likely that the first order of business for a Biden administration would be a big stimulus with a lot of green infrastructure spending in there, you know, modernizing electricity grids and so forth. Do you expect that a Biden administration might go on and do more than that on climate? Or do you think people who are hoping for a huge revolution in the way America produces and consumes energy are likely to be disappointed?
1: I think that depends in large part on what happens with control of the Senate. It's worth noting that the revolution, to some extent, is already underway. I mean, this year, coal-fired power is going to drop to about 20 percent of total electricity usage with renewables producing the same amount for the first time ever. So there are market forces as well as state policies that are already moving in this direction. So it's a question of whether Joe Biden can build on that momentum and accelerate it. What strikes me about Joe Biden's climate plans is I think that they're a pretty good case study in how he's tried to differentiate himself from Elizabeth Warren and from Bernie Sanders in the primary. And I think one of the most forceful parts of the one debate that he did have with President Trump is when he said, you know, I don't support that Green New Deal. I have my own climate plan and I'm the Democratic Party. It's a very ambitious plan that he has. It includes Targets for clean energy. It includes big investments in research and support for um, zero emission public transportation. It's packed with different things, some of which are more likely to happen than others. But it is still essentially a pragmatic plan. As Vijay says, the first order of business is to deal with COVID and to have an immediate stimulus, of which green spending would be a big part. But I think. For Joe Biden, climate does have the potential to be, for his presidency, what healthcare was to Barack Obama's presidency. This is a really big deal. There's a huge amount of support for action on the federal level among the Democratic electorate. And so I think that this will be a top priority for his administration.
2: John, just before we look back to the role that Joe Biden played in the Iraq war, I want to ask you about the Biden story du jour, which is the New York Post's story about Hunter Biden. It's a story that we ignored in the weekly edition of The Economist this week, but since we believe in practicing radical candor at The Economist, even when we're podcasting, do you think that was the right decision? I mean, to my mind, the provenance of the emails looked a bit sketchy, and I just wanted a bit more time to kick the tires on the sourcing before publishing anything. Do you think that was the right decision, or do you think I messed up there?
0: No, I think it was the right decision. I'd be saying that even if you didn't control my performance evaluations. I mean... The story is basically that this computer shop owner in Delaware had a laptop left in his shop that he thought might belong to Hunter Biden because there was a Beau Biden sticker on it. He somehow gave this to Rudy Giuliani, who, instead of turning it over to the FBI or trying to return it to Hunter Biden, perused its contents And found, what, a sort of 12-minute sex tape of Hunter and a bunch of emails, supposedly, showing that Hunter tried to curry favor with Ukrainian officials through his father. I mean, to my mind, it has all the signs of a Russian disinformation campaign, and I think not going heavy on it while we tried to figure out where those emails came from, who gave them to Rudy Giuliani, how he happened to come upon them, all
2: of that was the right decision. Okay, that's a relief. Thank you. It's time for the usual reminder. If you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. Signing up is really simple. You'll get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. Our cover this week is about Xinjiang and the global crisis of human rights. Our leaders page weighs in on the fraught debate around trans women in sport. And there's a great free exchange column on auctions and the economics Nobel winners. That link for a special rate is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode on your podcast app.
4: I think you and I believe, and many of us believe here, as long as Saddam's at the helm, there is no reasonable prospect. You or any other inspector is ever going to be able to guarantee that we have rooted out, root and branch the entirety of Saddam's program relative to weapons of mass destruction. In
2: 1998, Joe Biden was already in his third decade in the Senate and well-known for grandstanding in televised hearings.
4: And it's going to require guys like you in uniform to be back on foot in the desert taking, the son of a, the, uh, taking Saddam down. You know it and I know it.
2: This was a full five years before American tanks eventually rolled into Baghdad. Then, Biden was the most senior Democrat on the Foreign Relations Committee. Now, he's on the brink of becoming the most hawkish Democrat in the White House since Vietnam. In this year's primary contest, Biden said he was against the Iraq war from the start. He claimed the Bush administration duped senators into authorizing military action. That's not how it looked at the time.
4: Mr. President, I will vote for the, uh, the Lieberman-Warner amendment to authorize the use of military force against Iraq. And unlike uh, my my colleague from West Virginia and Maryland, I do not believe this is a rush to war. I believe it's a march to peace and security.
2: By 9-11, Biden was chair of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations and one of the top Democrats in Washington. He could have made life hard for President George W. Bush as he sought support for military action in Iraq. Instead, Biden built bipartisan backing for the war. He wrote a joint New York Times op-ed with his Republican counterpart, denouncing Saddam Hussein. Witnesses he called to Senate hearings echoed the president's warnings of the threat from Iraq.
4: Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. The regime of Saddam Hussein is no more, America is more secure, the world is more peaceful, and the long-suffering people of Iraq are now free.
2: The final episode of the sitcom Friends aired in the spring of 2004. American troops had been in Iraq for a year. At the same time, another cozy fiction, this one about America's military aims and abilities, also came to an end. A bloody insurgency metastasized. The CIA admitted Saddam had no weapons of mass destruction. Joe Biden recalibrated.
4: It's a failed policy, it's a failed strategy, and it's only a matter of time before our Republican colleagues come to that conclusion.
2: I never believed they had WMD, he told the Council on Foreign Relations that October. The following year, he joined fellow Democrats in arguing the
4: war was a mistake. My prayer is they come to it sooner than later because in the meantime, a lot of innocent lives are going to be lost toward an end that in fact is not achievable when there is an achievable end that allows us to leave Iraq, get our troops home, and not having traded a dictator for chaos.
5: We need better judgment when we decide to send our young men and women into war. By the time the
2: 2008 primaries came round, Barack Obama's anti-war message sunk Hillary Clinton's candidacy. She too had voted for the Iraq war.
4: And that's part of the reason why I think
5: that I would be the strongest nominee on this argument of national security.
2: When Obama turned to Joe Biden to be his vice president, it was a chance for the veteran senator to rebrand. We will
4: end this war. For John McCain, there is no end in sight to end this war. Fundamental difference, we will end this war.
2: Obama handed responsibility for getting America out of Iraq to Biden. The vice president chose to back Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki as he became increasingly authoritarian. Al-Maliki exacerbated sectarianism in Iraq, helping to incubate ISIS. As a result, by 2016, Iraq still loomed in American politics. This time, it was Donald Trump's turn to debate Hillary Clinton.
5: You had supported the war in Iraq before the invasion. What makes your judgment? I did not what, support um, the in war two, in Iraq. He
2: went to elaborate lengths to claim he had been against the war all along.
4: War, wait a minute. I was against the war in Iraq, just so you put it out. The record shows otherwise, but why is your judgment... The record any? shows that I'm right.
2: It paid off. Political scientists Douglas Kriner and Felix Shen have found significant correlation between military casualty rates in swing states and support for Trump. Some lofty political careers were collateral damage in the Iraq war. Hillary Clinton's, of course, former Secretary of State Colin Powell, British Prime Minister Tony Blair. There's an assumption that the Iraq calamity helps explain the teetering of the political establishment and the rise of populism. The last two winning presidential campaigns were explicitly anti-war, The deck of cards of Iraq's most wanted is a historical souvenir now. The neocons and Bush administration hawks who held such sway in Washington are also long gone. Joe Biden is the last player in the Iraq drama still standing, standing on the threshold of the presidency.
4: The world voted to send inspectors in and they still went to war. From that point on, I was in the position of making the case that it was a big, big mistake. And from that point on, I've moved to bring those troops home.
2: John, one of the aspects of Joe Biden's candidacy I find most puzzling and most interesting, in a sense, is that for the past few years, we've Been told and have in times ourselves told a story about the rise of populism in which the Iraq war and the financial crisis essentially discredited a whole political elite that was then swept away. And yet, here you have Joe Biden, who appears to be poised to become America's next president, who not only was pro the Iraq war and in a pretty influential position in Washington when that war was started but also was a cheerleader pretty much for financial deregulation because of his role representing Delaware, where financial firms have a certain amount of sway. So do we have to reassess this idea that the Iraq war and and the financial crisis were kind of kryptonite for the political elite? I think they were kryptonite for the political
0: elite. But even though Biden was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he really wasn't front and center in the run-up to the war, and he wasn't really front and center in the financial crisis either. There's an element of sort of zealot to his career. He's not a man of terribly strong personal convictions. He's somewhat of an opportunist. He was, I don't know if it's right to call him pro-war, but he certainly went along with the war in Iraq when that was the prevailing political mood. He didn't want to get tarred with being an anti-war lefty. And then when the mistakes of that war became apparent, he didn't switch positions, perhaps, but he switched emphasis. And so that allowed him to sort of skate on both sides and stay somewhat under the radar in a way that politicians with more conviction just were not able to do.
2: Charlotte, I think Pete Buttigieg once said words to the effect that Biden has an amazing ability to define what's a reasonable position at any given time. And I suppose in the 90s, being in favor of financial deregulation and using America's troops to affect regime change in far-flung places was seemed reasonable and kind of the cool position to have. And since then, Biden, like mainstream opinion in America, has flipped on both those matters.
1: I was really struck by something that Robert Gates, who's a former defense secretary, said about Biden as vice president, which was Essentially, that he had been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue, which is a pretty damning statement from someone who's not predisposed to be an extreme critic. But in some ways, I think Biden, despite having a record on foreign policy that's not unimpeachable, he benefits in this election from being a foil to President Trump's extremely erratic Mm. foreign policy. I mean, it's not that difficult to seem like the reasonable person. He can say that he wants to restore American support for NATO, that he wants to rejoin the Paris Agreement. He can criticize Trump for the withdrawal of American troops from northern Syria, which Biden has called the most shameful thing any president has done in modern history in in foreign policy. So in some ways, even though his record may be imperfect— It's easy to think of Biden as a leader who on the global stage would restore a sense of just very basic, calm reason in contrast to the current president.
2: So, John, we focused on Iraq a little bit, but what can we tell about Joe Biden's views on foreign policy and views of how American power ought to be used in the world from more recent conflicts in Libya or Syria, say? Well, he's certainly
0: not reticent to use it, and I think that's important coming after a Trump presidency in which America has sort of stepped back from its role as leader of the free world. He was instrumental in the decision to accompany NATO in Libya, which anti-interventionists saw as a disaster, and he has doubled down on that position and said that America got it right to intervene in Libya he has, as you mentioned, been critical of President Trump's decision to withdraw American troops from northern Syria. So he is in support of a sort of of a muscular American presence in the world. In 2008, that position would not have been popular, right? Because the muscular American position in the world had been discredited by the persecution of the Iraq war. In 2020, I think there's a hunger for some sort of steadiness, for some American presence in the world that perhaps there wasn't, you know, a dozen years ago. So that that position seems prudent and steady in a way that it might not otherwise.
2: So Charlotte, this week's cover of The Economist is about China and human rights. I think there's an expectation among foreign policy wonks that human rights would be a much bigger part of America's relationship with China under a Biden presidency than it has been during the Trump presidency. Donald Trump doesn't signal a great deal of concern for human rights abuses in China, even though his policy has been you know, much more confrontational towards China than Barack Obama's was. How different do you think relations with China would be under a President Biden compared with President Trump?
1: In some ways, they wouldn't be as different as you might initially expect. It seems unlikely that he would quickly withdraw from the tariffs that are now in place. He's been critical of the Trump administration's efforts to, for instance, rein in TikTok, but I'm not sure that he would immediately embrace Huawei. I don't think that new trade deals would be a top priority. I think the biggest thing, as you point out, is the question of human rights. He's been much more vocal than President Trump in talking about human rights in China. He has said that he would support sanctions and and a UN Security Council condemnation of the individuals and companies that are involved in China's human rights abuses of Uyghurs. And I'd really recommend that listeners read our great piece in this week's issue by my colleague Gotti epstein About this. But um, I think that that's the biggest area where you'd see a lot of daylight between him and President Trump is on the issue of human rights.
2: Yeah, it seems to me the hardest thing for a Biden administration, if we get such a thing in January, as far as the relationship with China goes, is trying to work out how America can both work with China to reduce carbon dioxide emissions and also confront China on its human rights record, which is abysmal. And whether it's possible to do those two things at the same time or whether the administration will have to choose one of them. Thank you both. We'll be back in a bit to discuss how Joe Biden operates with somebody who worked with him as vice president.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com
5: slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: We've talked about what Joe Biden plans to do, what he's done in the past, but a big part of governing is responding to unexpected events. And that's a test of character and competence How does Joe Biden operate? Fasman, you spoke to somebody who can tell us a bit about this. Yeah, to get a kind of character reference for Joe Biden,
0: I spoke to someone I'm in touch with a lot, someone I've known for more than 30 years. Uh, Scott Mulhauser was the vice president's deputy chief of staff during the 2012 campaign. And he knows him very well. What was interesting to me was how much Scott wanted to talk about Biden's mastery of the unsexy but crucial mechanics of legislative politics.
5: And that's a real sweet spot for, for Vice President Biden, knowing what's achievable, but also doing so while dreaming big and thinking sort of fulsomely through what policy changes could look like. And the reality is that, that the art of legislation in the Senate is, is not just artful policymaking, but the politics and, and the stagecraft and, and the political elbow grease it takes to get it over the finish line. There was an impressive team, but no one had more tenure or better relationships than he did. And so it's the ability to dig in with experts, understand the policy outcomes you want, figure out where your red lines are, and then figure out where your votes are.
0: Vice President Biden often says when he comes into office that Republicans will be eager to work with him. And I think what people, especially on the left, hear when they hear that is a sort of Naive assumption that with Donald Trump out of the way, the scales are going to fall from everybody's eyes. I don't think that's what he's saying. And from what you've described to me, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I know how to get things done so we're not just standing on the sidelines screaming at each other. Do you have faith in his ability to get things done, even given the insanely high levels of, of polarization that exist right now?
5: I think the answer is that the vice president wants to drive outcomes. I'll give you an example. There have been years of discussions about an infrastructure package. There have been years of Republicans saying that might be something we could get behind. If that were part of a COVID response, jobs-related economic stimulus push, he would, I suspect, attempt to woo the other side and see what it would take to get the sufficient votes to get there. And if not, drive it till it gets done. And if that's only Democratic votes, it's only Democratic votes. The one thing you can say about someone who's worked and is as steeped in Senate and, and presidential politics and as he is, is is there's not a naivete, there's not a gullibility that will let him be taken for a ride.
0: Is there a story from your time with him that you think sums up sort of who he is as a, as a man and a politician?
5: The one that, that jumps out most immediately, I think, is his decision on same-sex marriage, where he, he led the fight. I mean, sometimes you think through the policies and you get to the right outcomes and you drive it. And sometimes... You get asked a good question, you answer it, and that drives a bunch of policy. So the vice president was asked on Meet the Press his take on the legality of same-sex marriage. And he endorsed it in a real way, far ahead of the others in the administration and elected officials across the country. And it became such a maelstrom that it helped change history. It was a tense several weeks because that wasn't on the docket, it wasn't what was coming next, but it was the right answer to a good question. And from there, history came quickly. The president endorsed it, and Democratic senator after Democratic congressman or woman after governor went with him. I think he saw the opening in the question, answered it the right way, and used as an opening to drive real policy and change history. And I, I couldn't be more proud of him for it.
2: Charlotte, I thought John made a really good point there when talking to Scott that the criticism that you hear of Joe Biden when he says that he'll be able to come in and persuade lots of Republicans to vote for his agenda is that he fundamentally doesn't understand the way that American politics has shifted over the past couple of decades. He doesn't understand that cycle after cycle, centrist Republicans have been knocked out of the Senate, that nobody reaches across the aisle anymore, and that bipartisan legislating doesn't happen anymore. But Scott's point and John's point is that you're talking about marginal senators here, maybe persuading one Republican or even just successfully persuading somewhat conservative Democrats like Joe Manchin in West Virginia to vote for the president's agenda. So he's not being as naive, perhaps, as his critics imply.
1: I think that's right. And I think this would be a a big tension within the Joe Biden presidency. You saw in Barack Obama's presidency, even then, when the left wing of the party was um, not as ascendant, some criticizing Obama for giving up too much ground. And that criticism was levied specifically at Biden. He did help to avoid a government shutdown in 2011, in large part because of Using his relationship with Mitch McConnell to help break the deadlock over the debt ceiling, and he did so again in uh, in 2012 with the American Taxpayer Relief Act. But I thought it was interesting. A little later on, Harry Reid, who was then the Senate Majority Leader, actually shut him out of some negotiations in 2013 because they felt like he was giving up too much. And so, on the one hand, I think that Joe Biden is a fundamentally optimistic candidate in the way that he, I think, does offer some hope of bringing a bit of bipartisanship, even if it is only with one senator, as you say, Prito. But this is going to be a big tension, I think, within his presidency, given how loud the left wing of the party has become, whether he will triumph by deploying that pragmatism and by trying to just get things done. The tension between that and then this criticism that he's giving up too much.
0: I think Charlotte makes a great point about Biden's optimism. I think that's one big difference between him and a lot of the candidates he ran against in the 2020 primaries, that he was an optimist. Another difference between him and Donald Trump and Barack Obama, and this, I think, is going to matter in how he achieves his agenda, is that he genuinely likes people. I mean, that's one of his secret talents as a negotiator, is that he's, he's warm and friendly and likes the fleshy side of politics. You know, Donald Trump, Donald Trump is something of a solipsist, and Barack Obama as gifted an orator as he was, and as personal a politician as he was, was also somewhat cool and cerebral. I think Joe Biden, there's something of this sort of old school war healer to him, where he likes slapping backs and shaking hands and the cut and thrust of the negotiation. I think that's going to matter.
2: Something of a solipsist is, I think, the most measured thing anybody has ever said about <laughs> Donald Trump. So congratulations. <laughs> I think you've broken a record there. <laughs>
1: um, one of the things that's been interesting in the past few weeks is that Biden has really pulled ahead in the polls, I mean, both on a national level and in some really important swing states. And there's evidence that voters trust him on a whole range of different kinds of issues. But nevertheless, he still does not seem to get voters that excited. So there was some interesting stuff from the Cook Political Report that showed that Republicans have done a much better job than Democrats in adding new voters to the rolls. And um, they had much improved on their performance from 2016. So, for instance, in Florida, as of October 1st, since the March primary, the Republican Party had added nearly 200,000 Republicans, about double the number of Democrats. In Pennsylvania, similarly, Republicans had added twice as many. Same thing in North Carolina, an even bigger gap. So that's pretty pretty important to note, both tactically and as a measure of voters' enthusiasm about Biden.
0: If I were a Democratic strategist, I would be worried about those voter registration numbers. I wonder whether they are an artifact of the way the parties have responded to the pandemic. I mean, the traditional voter registration grounds that Democrats use, colleges, churches, those have been shut down at least in Florida, what I saw when I was there a couple of weeks ago is that Republicans were just out and about in a way that Democrats weren't. I wonder if that is what's driving these registration numbers. I think the big question with Joe Biden, I think for a lot of voters, is that he has had a very quiet campaign. That I don't think it's fair to say the right next to this argument, that Joe Biden has avoided scrutiny. I don't think that's entirely true. He's been scrutinized for four decades, but he has had a quiet general election campaign. And I think that some voters wonder if there's more to him than just not being Trump, that has he given them enough of a sort of positive reason to vote for them? I think that's the question that I suspect his campaign and other Democrats are going to be worried about over the next two and a half weeks.
2: I'm always a bit suspicious of charisma in politics, and maybe this betrays that. But you could flip it on its head, John Fassman, and say it's pretty amazing given how well Joe Biden is doing in the polls and how he could be presenting himself as the saviour of democracy in America and the West, how he seems perfectly content to not be too prominent in this campaign, because that seems to be the strategically smart thing to do, right? The more voters hear from Donald Trump, the worse Donald Trump's numbers are. And so the Biden campaign seems to have concluded that the best strategy is just to be a bit absent. And normally, Politicians, particularly those running for president, are so egotistical that you'd think that they'd resist that kind of strategy. And I think it reflects rather well on Biden that he's prepared just to step aside and not try and relentlessly hog the limelight. I think you're absolutely right. And
0: I'm delighted to hear about your suspicion of charisma because I share it. I am the world's biggest Bill Bradley and Paul Sangus fan. Uh,
1: Paul Sangus <laughs> I mean, has a huge those... <laughs> following. He's well known for groupies. But I... I... Is he? No. (laughs) Damn it. Um,
0: No, those are the politicians that I really like. People who are so sort of dull that you can trust them.
2: I completely agree with that. I suspect that a publication that has no bylines sort of selects for people who are suspicious (laughs) of charisma. But I think a few other people would agree on the evidence of the past four years or so that an excess of charisma in politics is not a good thing. Right, before I let you go, we have a quiz. Vijay's Bidenomics briefing made the point that Joe Biden's home state of Delaware is also headquarters for icons of 20th century industry, notably DuPont. Employees of the Giant Chemicals Company lived in the Wilmington suburb where Biden grew up. Eleuther Irénée DuPont imported machinery from France to build his first factory in 1802. His first big customer was the US military. What was DuPont making? So you're making rubber was it? Isn't that what Dupont started out as a rubber company?
1: Sorry, this is in eighteen. What year is the? Eighteen oh two. I think, I don't think it's rubber. Um, I don't think not rubber can be my answer, though. I'm giving um, you my most inscrutable to do with tri- quiz show host <laughs> look. Something having to do with. Um, I'm gonna go with some component of transportation, like something having to do with carriages or rolling cannons. Oh, that maybe gunpowder.
2: It was gunpowder, Charlotte. Oh Well yes. done, man. By dint of giving five other answers before, you actually did get to the right one. That's fantastic! <laughs> but you get a point for that. So congratulations. An Economist article from 1941 bears the enticing headline: "Textiles of the Future." It reports on DuPont's innovative new fabric, whose principal feature seems to lie in the stocking trade. As usual, The Economist was spot on. Nylon would later cause riots outside department stores in New York and Pittsburgh among over-eager stocking customers. But its most immediate use was again military. What was nylon used for in World War
1: II? Maybe some material um, in parachutes.
2: The answer is parachutes. Charlotte, you're two for two.
1: You're kidding me. A triumphant
2: well quiz for you. That's awesome.
1: I'm just going to end now. Can we quit? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know we have two more weeks to go before the election, <laughs> but I feel like I should end on top.
2: Well, on that note of triumph, I will bid you farewell. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. That's all from us. If you like the podcast, please tell everyone and leave a rating and a review in the usual places. You can get in touch on email. The address is radio at Make sure you listen to The Economist's daily podcast, The Intelligence, for updates on the big twists and turns of this campaign in the remaining weeks. Thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week.